Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Crime with Holly. I'm your host, Crime Holly. Today's episode is one that I really struggled with all week on trying to figure out how I wanted to present this case to you guys. I'm going to try my best to hold myself together during the recording because it's a very tragic and hard case for me because the victim was completely failed by the system repeatedly. She did everything right to try and protect herself, and many agencies failed to protect her. Starting at the Adult Probation and Parole Board, all the way down to the officers who were in charge of investigating her case. I do not take criticizing law enforcement lightly. I do believe that there are hands down more good people serving our communities than bad. I don't believe that this case was handled the way it was because those in charge of investigating her case are evil or bad people. But I think that they lacked the experience, lacked the training and the proper knowledge on how to handle this case as it was unfolding. I think that there are many procedures and protocols that were missed, again, due to lack of training and experience. I don't take presenting this case to you guys lightly. However, I think it's an important story to continue to share. And I admire nothing more than when a family turns their tragedy into something positive to help victims and to help better those procedures and protocols and training so that their tragedy doesn't repeat in someone else's lives. This story somewhat goes hand-in-hand hand with last week's episode on teen dating violence. This story is another dating violence story involving a college student. One in four women, or 25%, have experienced some form of physical violence by an intimate partner at some point in their lives. One in seven men, or 14%, have been severely physically abused by an intimate partner in their lifetime. Dating violence and stalking are some of the most pressing issues facing universities and colleges today. And the sad truth about this is that universities and college campuses are not trained to respond effectively to these problems. And that is exactly what had happened to Lauren McCluskey. Before I dive into the details, I want to let everyone know that there is an incredible documentary done by ESPN Investigates on Lauren's story. I will have the link to the hour and a half long documentary in the description of this episode so that you guys can check it out for yourselves. I highly, highly, highly recommend it. It was beautifully done and really shows how much Lauren was loved and how this entire thing was handled terribly. So with all of that said, let's get into the details of the murder of 21-year-old Lauren McCluskey. On February 12, 1997, Jill and Matthew McCluskey welcomed their baby girl into the world. They named her Lauren Jennifer McCluskey. She was born in Berkeley, California, but she didn't live there very long. 
Both of her parents took jobs as professors at the Washington State University in August of 1998, so they moved their family to Pullman, Washington, where Lauren grew up. From a very early age, Lauren was adventurous and athletic. She would climb trees at the age of two and had absolutely no fear. All throughout her life, Lauren was the definition of determination. She didn't let anything hold her back, and she usually succeeded at everything she did. She was described by her father as being a very sensitive girl. He said that the athletics that she was involved in really gave her a place to channel all of that and to help her grow into a confident young lady. At the age of eight, her mom signed her up for her first Junior Olympics Association track meet. And there she competed in the high jump, long jump, and 400 meters. And she did amazing. Lauren broke the record for all three of those events. Her mother, Jill, told her that if she could do well enough to qualify for the nationals, she would take her. And as I said, Lauren was a determined young lady, so qualify she did. At the age of 10, she placed second for the high jump at the Junior Olympic Nationals. Lauren didn't just do track and field, though. She was into all kinds of sports, including dance. A friend of hers named Regina Snyder met Lauren at dance class, and she also said that whatever Lauren did, she was good at. Whether it be dance, track, you name it, she did it, she succeeded. Lauren was also the type of person who always wanted to try something new. If it was challenging, Lauren wanted to do it even more. She was always up for a challenge and wanted to do whatever it was until she was good at it. But she was more than just the athletics and all the achievements that she hit. She was incredibly smart. I saw a video on that documentary I mentioned of Lauren and her brother Ryan having a competition to see who could recite the most digits of pi. And that girl went well beyond the 3.14 that I know. It was extremely impressive. Lauren graduated from Pullman High School with honors and received a scholarship for track and field to the University of Utah to compete in the Pac-12 conference. Lauren was also the type of friend that you wanted in your corner. No matter the time of day, if you needed someone to talk to, she would be there for you. She had a huge heart and was extremely giving. Lauren not only loved people, but she loved animals, specifically cats. She had a really soft spot for cats. She volunteered her time at the Whitman County Humane Society, where she helped socialize cats so that they would be more adoptable. When Lauren got to college at the University of Utah, it was no surprise that she excelled. She was majoring in communications and was very dedicated to her studies. She was also dedicated to the weight room and, of course, track and field. At college, Lauren blossomed. She was never a complainer. She did what she had to do, and people noticed that about her. I think for Lauren, if I would guess just by learning about her personality, I think the challenges she faced in the bad weather in Utah or the grueling track practices were looked at more as a blessing instead of something to complain about. 
Those were all things that she got to endure because she was blessed in life with an incredible opportunity. Everyone had incredible things to say about Lauren, and she never spoke poorly of anyone. She just was an all-around amazing and inspiring young woman. I feel like I could go on and on about all of the amazing things people had to say about Lauren. From what I've learned, she was that cliche saying of a person walks into the room and they light it up. She had these beautiful, piercing blue eyes that really radiate in all of her pictures. She was just so beautiful, and it seemed like she was both beautiful inside and out. In the fall of 2018, Lauren was looking forward to her upcoming graduation. She was in her senior year of college maintaining a 3.77 GPA, and she had recently applied to graduate in the spring of 2019. On the weekends, Lauren often went out to the bars to go dancing with her girlfriends, and that's exactly what she did on the night of Saturday, September 1st, 2018. She and her friend Alex headed to a bar called London Bell in downtown Salt Lake City, Utah, for an evening of drinks, dancing, and just fun. Outside of the bar is where she first became acquainted with the bouncer, and throughout the night, this man would walk by the table, chat it up with Lauren and her girlfriends, and then he would continue on. This happened several times in the night, and around midnight, the girls decided to pack it up and head home for the evening. As they were approaching the door to leave, the bouncer stepped in front of Lauren, and he kind of placed his hands on her shoulder and started talking to her. He officially introduced himself as Sean Fields, and he told her that he was interested in seeing her again soon. Now, Sean was a big man. He was very tall, super muscular, and when you think of a bar bouncer, he's probably exactly what you would imagine. And Lauren was interested in him, too. So the two exchanged phone numbers, they agreed to meet up later on that day of September 2nd, and when they hung out, Lauren and Sean really hit things off. He was a 28-year-old college student attending Salt Lake Community College, and on top of being a bouncer at night, Sean was working at a call center. He took her out to dinner, bought her flowers, and asked her to be his girlfriend. He really swept Lauren off her feet, and as her friends sat back and watched it all happen, they couldn't help but be happy for her. Lauren was beaming with happiness and excitement for this new relationship, and her girlfriend Regina said it was like a fairy tale and almost too good to be true. But Lauren was so happy, so naturally, her friends were happy for her too. Sean was very charming and charismatic, and people seemed to naturally be drawn to him. But I think the first red flag happened within just a few days of Sean and Lauren meeting and becoming a couple. Lauren told her girlfriend that Sean said that she could invite some of her friends out to hang out with them on Thursday so her friends could meet him. And while that might not seem that odd, it stuck out as odd to Alex, her girlfriend she was out with that night when she first met Sean, because of the wording. Sean said, I could invite some friends out to meet him. Like it was Sean giving permission It just seemed a little controlling. Lauren continued to tell Alex that Sean told her to wear jeans and a t-shirt, so she did. 
As the days passed, Lauren's friends started to notice more. Lauren and Alex had been shopping at Target when Sean had called, and Alex said Sean seemed a little accusatory on the phone. He was questioning who she was with, where she was, and why. Her friend Regina noticed that no matter what Lauren was doing, if Sean would call, Lauren would drop whatever she was doing and answer the phone. So Regina questioned it. She was like, Lauren, like, why do you have to answer the phone when he calls? And Lauren told her that Sean had a lot of insecurities because of past relationships. So she just didn't want him to worry about her, which he did a lot. She wanted to make sure that he knew at all times what she was doing, where she was, and that she was okay. And let me remind you, this was like early, early in the relationship, within like the first couple weeks of them dating. Regina said that he was always very manipulative on the phone, and he drew out the conversations when Lauren was clearly trying to get off the phone. Now, Sean was so worried about Lauren that he apparently took it upon himself to buy her pepper spray, telling her that she needed it to protect herself from other men. He also invited Lauren to go shooting so she could learn how to use a gun, and he was adamant that he wanted her to eventually get her own gun. Now, at first, I said her friends were super excited and happy for her with this new relationship. However, it did not take long before they all felt very uncomfortable by it. And when Alex learned that Sean was taking Lauren shooting and that he wanted her to get her own gun for protection, she felt very uneasy about this. And so Alex confided in some other friends and expressed her concerns about this relationship and how it was progressing. Alex and a few friends went to a woman by the name of Diamond Jackson, and she was not only a friend of Lauren's, but she was also the housing advisor for the dorms that Lauren was living in on campus. Lauren's friends began outlining this relationship for Diamond, and when they got to the point where they told her that Sean wanted Lauren to get a gun, this is when things kind of shifted for Diamond. She realized that this wasn't just girl gossip and that this was something very serious and could be detrimental to Lauren's academic career. And this is when the paper trail really kind of started. At this point, Lauren and Sean had been dating for about a month, and Diamond knew that this was something that needed to be brought to attention of her supervisors. So she called her supervisor, laid it out for her what was going on, and asked for guidance on what she should do. She asked if she should call the police to have them go look into this, if she should contact Lauren and ask her to meet up so they can discuss it. But this direct supervisor of Diamonds was new, and she really didn't have an idea on how to handle this. So she asked Diamond to get in touch with the supervisors above her. On October 2nd, Diamond sent an email to that supervisor, giving them the full details as well. She stated in this email that there was serious concerns for Lauren and that Lauren had not been taking care of herself. She also stated that Lauren wasn't really hanging out with her friends anymore and that the non-resident boyfriend had been staying in her dorm room at times with Lauren and her roommate and also that this boyfriend could potentially be tracking Lauren. She also mentioned the gun that he wanted Lauren to get. She sent the email off and waited for a reply. 
A few days later, Lauren actually made her own disturbing discovery about Sean. She had seen his driver's license somehow and discovered that his name really wasn't Sean Fields, and it was actually Melvin Sean Rowland. And he was not 28 years old like he said, but instead he was 37. From my understanding, Lauren didn't confront him about this ID initially. It seems like she saw it, was shocked by it, took a picture of the ID to show friends, and then just kept it to herself. After finding all of this out, Lauren had a scheduled trip home to Pullman, Washington, and it was there that she began doing a little bit of digging for information on her boyfriend, and what she found was shocking. Melvin, and I'm just going to refer to him by his real name from here on out, was a registered sex offender and had been charged with enticing a minor as well as attempted forcible sexual abuse in 2004. Lauren told her mom everything and told her that she was going to break up with him as soon as she got back to Utah. Jill agreed that she needed to break things off with him. When she got back on October 9th, Alex and Lauren started to plan how she was going to break up with him. Alex didn't want Lauren to break up with him on campus because it was fall break and a lot of people were gone. Alex was concerned that if something was to happen, there wouldn't be anyone on campus to help Lauren. Surveillance footage from October 9th catches Melvin coming to Lauren's dorm where she can be seen opening the door for him and giving him a brief kiss. Lauren had to remain civil at this point with Melvin because while she was out of town in Washington, he had her car. So I think the brief kiss was her trying to keep the peace and not have a huge issue right off the bat. Alex knew that Melvin was going over to Lauren's dorm, and she recalls feeling so worried and scared for her that she couldn't sleep that night. But Lauren assured her that she would call her in the morning. The following morning, Alex spoke to Lauren on the phone, where Lauren was speaking in very hushed tones and seemed scared. Alex asked her if she was alone, and she replied with, No, I'll call you later. When Lauren was finally able to speak freely with Alex, she told her that Melvin stayed over at her dorm the night before and tried to explain away those charges when confronted. He said that it happened a long time ago and that he had been at a fraternity party when a girl who was underage lied about her age and he got caught. She ended up breaking things off with him and when he left that morning, he still had her car. So Jill decided that she was going to contact the university police on the afternoon of October 10th, requesting assistance for her daughter. On the call, she states that her daughter had been dating a man who turned out to be a bad guy, that her daughter found out that he was a sex offender, and this man has her car. She states that she doesn't want her daughter to go meet Melvin to get the car back alone because she's worried something bad could happen to her. Jill gives the dispatcher Lauren's phone number so she could make contact with her to arrange this meetup to get her car back. The dispatcher calls Lauren and tells her that her mom called very concerned about the exchange between Melvin and her and asks if she feels comfortable with him giving the car back to her alone. Lauren kind of hesitates for a second and says, quote, yeah, I think it's okay, end quote. 
21 minutes later, Lauren is back on the phone with the dispatcher, and she tells Lauren that they have a security officer who is in charge of escorts for the night available to wait with her if she would like. Lauren agrees and says, yes, that would be great. Sometime close to 5 p.m., Lauren finally got her car back, and it wasn't long after that that she started receiving a lot of text messages from different numbers. On October 12th, Lauren calls University Police again, telling them that she keeps getting these weird text messages from random people saying that Melvin was in the hospital, another text message said that he had died, and then she got a text message from Melvin himself where he was asking Lauren if she wanted to go to a funeral, his funeral. She tells university police that she feels like these people who are texting her are trying to somehow lure her somewhere. The dispatcher asked if Lauren ever texted back, asking them to stop texting her, and she replied with no, but I've blocked several of the numbers. The dispatcher tells her that she was going to send the information over to an officer and that that officer would be in touch, but nobody ever reached out to Lauren about this. The following day, October 13th, in the early morning hours, Lauren started getting a different kind of message. These messages were about some explicit photos that had been taken of her and Melvin. The person texted stated that if Lauren doesn't send money, they were going to send these images out to everyone. Lauren at first thought that Melvin was involved, so she contacted him and he denied everything and said that he was being blackmailed with these photos as well. And sadly, Lauren did end up sending $1,000 through Venmo to this person so they wouldn't leak her photos. But she was still concerned that Melvin was somehow involved. Around 9 a.m., Lauren calls university police again. This time, she explains to the dispatcher that she is being blackmailed for money. She said that the person texting her has a sexual image of her and her ex that they are threatening to send to everyone unless she pays up. She mentions that she thinks Melvin is involved. The dispatcher gets in contact with an officer by the name of Miguel Deras and relays the information. That was around 9-12 a.m. when Officer Deras first heard of the case. Around 11.15 a.m., Lauren and her friend Alex go into campus police station to file a report. Officer Deras and another officer came out to the waiting area where Lauren and Alex had been sitting. Instead of them being called back to a room to discuss the details of what was going on, they actually conducted their questions and took note right there in the lobby, which I find really inappropriate. Personally, I think that this should have been taken somewhere more private, even though in surveillance it does appear that Lauren and Alex are the only ones in there. I just feel that the appropriate thing would have been to take them somewhere else in case someone came in. In that documentary, Alex details this exchange between her and Lauren and the two officers. She said that she felt like they really didn't take it seriously. Alex explained to them that Lauren lived on the first floor of the dorms and they felt like it was a risk having her on the lower level in case someone tried to come through the window. 
Alex tells the officers that Melvin is a registered sex offender. He's been to prison, he has a violent past, and she had to Google him on her phone to show it to them. The officers have Lauren write a witness report, and the officers just kept telling Lauren that it was likely just a scam. But Lauren kept telling them that she doesn't think so, and she shows them one of the numbers that had been texting about this, and that number happened to belong to Melvin when they were dating. Once more, it seemed like they just kind of brushed it off. She gave them her written statement, and before leaving, they gave her the case number and said that the detective Kayla Dalif was gone for the weekend and that Lauren should hear an update on the case by Tuesday. Campus police failed to pull up Melvin to even look into him when this report was made. Had they done that, they would have seen that he was still on parole, and they could have contacted his parole officer, not even to necessarily rat him out, but more to notify her to tell her what was going on and the fact that his name was brought up to the police about a situation he could potentially be involved in. But none of that happened. Later that evening, Lauren decided that she was going to call the Salt Lake City Police and tell them what was going on. The dispatcher on the phone tells her that she will transfer her to the University Police, and Lauren tells her that she had already spoken to them, but she wanted to call the Salt Lake PD as well. The dispatcher tells her that usually where you live is who is going to handle your case. And Lauren explains that she was concerned because she wasn't sure how long it was going to take for the campus police to do something. And the dispatcher tells her that she was going to send her over to them so that Lauren could ask them herself. What's really sad to me is this audio clip. You can hear the distress in Lauren's tone. You can tell she's concerned, you can tell she's stressed, and she sounds lost and defeated. And I can imagine how completely hopeless she felt. She has reached out now three times to campus police about things involving Melvin and these messages, and it seemed like she was just swimming in circles. Nobody was helping her in any kind of way. She wasn't getting answers, she wasn't getting assistance, she wasn't getting anything, and how utterly hopeless she must have felt. Lauren then once more gets on the phone with a dispatcher from campus police, and she asks how long it would be before an arrest is made. The dispatcher asks if Lauren would like to speak to an officer, and she says yes. So through all of this, she kept getting put in touch with Officer Miguel Derez, and it seemed like he was the main one in charge of her case until the detective could look into it. She was still getting these messages throughout that Saturday, October 13th, and she continued to forward all of these messages to Officer Derez. For days, Lauren communicated with Officer Derez, and for days, nothing was done. On October 19th, Six days after she made that first report in the lobby of the police station, she had to ask Officer Derez to please tell the detective, the one that's in charge of her case, to contact her. Detective Kayla Dalif, who was assigned to her freaking case, still hadn't made contact with Lauren six days in. 
Lauren had to request to be contacted, which is complete and utter BS. And after asking this, Officer Darris promised Detective Dalif would be contacting her. All of Lauren's friends were concerned, and they were worried out of their minds for her. Melvin was a big dude. He could easily overpower Lauren. He was a registered sex offender, yet nobody thought to protect Lauren. Her friends just kept telling her, go to the police, go to the police. And Lauren kept telling them, I have. The police have it under control. I shouldn't have to worry about this anymore. But they absolutely did not have it under control at all. On that Friday, October 19th, the day Lauren requested for the detective to please call her, Melvin Rowland can be seen in the parking lot of Lauren's dorms at 3.16 p.m. walking around in a Deadpool costume. This was 10 days after Lauren had broken things off with him and only seven weeks after first meeting him. He was stalking her. At 4.02 p.m., Lauren can be seen entering her dorms through one entrance of the building, but at that very same time on a different side of the building, Melvin can be seen walking near the doors and kind of glancing through the windows in his Deadpool outfit. At some point, Lauren receives yet another message. And in this message, the person is accusing her of going to campus police, saying they know everything she's been telling them, and why would she report any of this? Little did Lauren know, Melvin had access to her email and was watching everything that she was sending over to campus police. Lauren had previously used Melvin's phone to sign into her email, and she never signed out. So he had full access to all of the emails she was sending. Alex told Lauren to not go to campus police about this because clearly they weren't doing anything. Six days had already gone by and nobody had contacted Lauren. What was the point in contacting them again? So once more, Lauren called the Salt Lake City Police. She expressed to them her worry about her working with campus police, how nothing has been done, she hasn't received an update, and whoever is harassing her seems to know more about it than she does. She was worried that there was some sort of inside leak at the campus department. And once more, the dispatcher from Salt Lake City Police tells Lauren she needs to contact campus police and ask to speak directly with her detective. Lauren calls Officer Darris, tells him she needs to speak directly with her detective, and he asks why. She says because her family is concerned and she needs to speak with her. Officer Darris almost seemed surprised that Lauren's family knew what was going on, and he told Lauren he would let the detective know. Sometime around 5 p.m., the detective finally calls Lauren and says something along the lines of, oh, I'm sorry, I haven't gotten in touch with you. I've been busy. I shouldn't make excuses, but it is what it is. According to Alex, when Lauren finally was able to speak to Detective Dalif, Lauren had to tell her all of the information in length. Alex felt like most of the information that Lauren had to retell was stuff that Detective Dalif should have already known and been looking into. It seemed like information hadn't been passed along to the detective, or if it had, she hadn't looked over any of the information or read it. 
At the end of their long conversation, the detective asks Lauren to send everything directly to her, which again, she should have already had this information because Lauren had been sending it to Officer Derez. That night, Lauren told her mom over the phone that she feels like she's annoying campus police with how much she's calling them and bugging them. But her mom assured her that it is their job to listen to her. It is their job to help her. It is their job to protect her and that she shouldn't have to worry about bothering them. It's literally their flipping job. Lauren sent everything that evening to Detective Dalif. At some point, Lauren told Alex that she really hopes that someday down the line when she's in a better place and married to someone else and is living a happy life, that she hopes that she and Alex could look back on this entire fiasco and laugh. Unfortunately, that would never happen. On October 22nd, 2018, 12 days after the breakup between Melvin Sean Rowland and Lauren McCluskey, Melvin is seen pulling into the parking lot of Lauren's dorms in a silver Buick that he had borrowed from his neighbor. He can be seen on surveillance outside the doors around 6.26 a.m. At 8.54 in the morning, Lauren received a text message from the deputy chief at the campus police. The message asked Lauren to come into the station as soon as possible because there is something that she needs to see. In the text, though, there was a lot of grammatical errors that Lauren was instantly on edge about. She didn't believe that this was actually the deputy chief texting her, and it made her super uncomfortable. Once again, Lauren calls Officer Miguel Derez, and she told him about the text, and he asked what number it was that texted her. He confirmed that it was not the deputy chief, and he instructed her to just ignore the text. So now we have someone that is impersonating an officer, which is also illegal, yet she's just told to ignore it, and nothing was done about it. No follow-up, no further questioning, no attempts at contacting this person, nothing. Just let that sink in. Nothing was done about this person who was impersonating an officer on top of everything else that was going on. On that October 22nd, Lauren had an appointment with the counselor in the morning. Since breaking up with Melvin, Lauren had visited the counselor twice to speak to them about everything that was going on. She felt like this counselor was someone that she could really open up to and just tell them everything. After that appointment, she was due at practice at some point, and then she had a scheduled night class. At 9.29 a.m., Lauren is seen leaving a building and heading across campus. At 10.16 a.m., Melvin can be seen walking into that same building, going upstairs and looking around. He was carrying a small black bag in his hand. He walked around campus all day long long looking for Lauren. At 1.37 p.m., you can see him inside of Lauren's dorm building once more carrying that small black bag. At 2.25 p.m., he is let back into the dorms by another student who opened the door for him and let him inside. 
This male student and Melvin fist bump, and the student walks upstairs, leaving Melvin to roam the first floor of the building. At 8.10 p.m., Melvin is seen leaving the dorm building for the last time, still carrying this black bag. At the same time, Lauren was leaving her night class across campus, which had gotten out a little earlier that evening. On her drive back home to her dorms, she called her mother, Jill. Jill set the phone on speakerphone so that Matt could also hear the conversation with their daughter. Lauren was in good spirits. She was talking about a project that she was working on that she was pretty proud of because she was working ahead, so she was going to have it completed early. She was happy. The phone call was good. Those final moments are deeply cherished by her parents. The happy phone call took a turn quickly, and Lauren started yelling, no, 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 no. Her parents could hear as she dropped the phone, and then a struggle began as their beautiful daughter was being drugged away against her will. Jill and Matt kept yelling into the phone, Lauren, 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 and they were met with complete silence. At 8.19 p.m. on October 22nd, Matt called 911 and explained exactly what happened with Lauren. The dispatcher immediately called out to all units stating that a possible kidnapping had happened, and they gave the details that Lauren's parents knew. While on the phone with police, Jill still frantically was holding onto her phone that still had that phone call connected to Lauren's phone. And all of a sudden, a woman's voice comes on the line. She says, hi, I have a backpack, an ID, and a phone. And Matt just tells her to stay there, that he believes his daughter was possibly mugged. The dispatcher requests that they ask the woman where exactly Lauren's items were found. At the same time, the woman grabs her own cell phone and calls university police to report what she found. The dispatcher confirms that he was just speaking to Lauren's parents and that police are on their way to her location. As police arrive on scene, they start to learn that some witnesses heard gunshots. The campus immediately issued an alert stating that a shooting happened and to secure in place. Police swarmed the campus and began a massive manhunt for Melvin. It was during this search that police located Lauren in the backseat of that borrowed Buick, but it was already too late. Lauren was gone. She had been shot seven times. Police were able to access the surveillance footage pretty quickly and found what Melvin was wearing and alerted police across the campus as well as across Salt Lake City. What we have since learned is that when Melvin left the campus, he went to a bus stop where he waited for someone to pick him up. He can be seen on surveillance waiting and then a car pull up. That car was being driven by a woman that he had arranged a date with on a dating app prior to killing Lauren. After picking him up, Melvin and this woman went out to dinner. They went back to her place where they hung out and he took a shower. The police became aware of all of this after the woman Melvin went on a date with saw his face all over the news as well as a description of her own car and contacted them. She went in for questioning, told them that the picture was the same guy, that that was her car that picked him up, but the name and the age was different. 
This woman was absolutely terrified for her safety and just wanted to do the right thing and tell what she knew. Shortly after being questioned, police spotted Melvin walking down the road and began pursuing him on foot. Around 1 a.m., Melvin broke into a church located in downtown Salt Lake City and hid inside. Once police went inside and began searching each room, they found Melvin dead of a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. And this is where you would think that this story would end. This beautiful young woman's life was ripped away by a coward who took his own. But the story is really just beginning. How did this happen? How could something like this happen when Lauren took every single step she needed to take to protect herself and to get this creep away from her? The system failed Lauren McCluskey. It failed her not once, not twice, but many times and failed her before she even met 37-year-old Melvin Rowland. In the days after Lauren's passing, the media really started to become aware of Melvin and his story, and the focus also started to shift to the U. How did the University of Utah allow this to happen? Within the first few days of learning Melvin Rowland's name, the media had so much information about him. They started talking to ex-girlfriends of his who all said he treated them the same way. That after they started dating him briefly, he became obsessive and turned into a crazy lunatic. So how is it that the media can quickly piece together what kind of person Melvin was within days, yet the university police didn't? Two investigations kicked off almost immediately. The first was done by the state's Department of Public Safety, where they focused on Melvin's history with the criminal justice system. The second was an independent review commissioned by the university. A review was presented to the university that showed all of the ways in which Lauren's case was completely mishandled by the university and responding officers. In this review, there was recommendations upon recommendations on how all of this could be fixed to prevent future situations like Lauren's. According to the Salt Lake Tribune, those recommendations included hiring more officers, hiring a victim advocate, train all police staff about interpersonal violence issues, and adopt a lethality assessment already used by many Utah law enforcement agencies. The review also encouraged the change of some basic police practices, which included interviewing victims and witnesses in person and done so in private, meaning not in the middle of a lobby like Lauren had been interviewed. After they were done presenting the findings and suggestions, the president of the university, Ruth Watkins, stated this, quote, this report does not offer us a reason to believe that this tragedy could have been prevented. Instead, the report offers weaknesses, identifies issues, and provides us with a roadmap for strengthening security on our campus, end quote. And that is so infuriating because evidence upon evidence was presented showing Lauren did so much to try and protect herself. The call log alone speaks volumes. Lauren called repeatedly, multiple times a day, every day, throughout the entire day. Yet nothing could have been done to prevent this. That just blows my mind that she had the audacity to say that. 
You mean if Ruth Watkins campus police would have pulled up Melvin's parole status after Lauren identified him as a felon who was harassing her who potentially had a gun, which is obviously illegal for a felon to have a gun, but if they would have pulled up his parole status, they would have seen he was still on parole. They then could have made contact with his parole officer and she could have done her job and looked into what he was doing during this entire time. She could have found that he was sending those harassing messages. She could have found that he was stalking her. She could have found that he was a felon in possession of a freaking firearm. But Ruth Watkins, university police, trained officers, mind you, trained to protect victims, weren't even familiar with the process on how to check someone's parole status. So it was never, not once, not even by the detective assigned to Lauren's case, checked. So from October 9th until Lauren's murder on the night of October 22nd, Melvin Rowland skated by under the radar while on parole. Because these officers were untrained, not only on how to check someone's parole status, but also untrained in identifying and recognizing subtle indicators of domestic violence. Despite Ruth Watkins denying that Lauren's murder could have been prevented, the McCluskeys knew that they had to continue fighting, and so they filed a $56 million lawsuit against the school. This really started a ripple effect where people started rallying to not only support the McCluskeys and to support Lauren and to fight for Lauren since she no longer had a voice, but they also started rallying for their own safety and their own rights. Women and men came forward to tell their stories where campus police at the U failed them and didn't follow through with their own complaints of harassment and stalking. This was a huge movement, and people were really starting to talk. So let's go ahead and switch gears a little bit and get into Melvin Rowland and who he was and a bit of his background. Melvin was born in Brooklyn, New York on May 12, 1981, and he was adopted by an older couple, and they gave him what Melvin referred to as an excellent childhood. From what I could gather in his early years, he really didn't have any issues, and his adopted family provided him with a great upbringing. Unfortunately, his parents passed away when he was just 15 years old. I believe he was put into some sort of foster situation, and I know that he attended a private high school in Colorado for troubled youth. There was no juvenile record that I am aware of, so this high school may have been due to his situation with the passing of his parents. I'm really not sure, but at the age of 20, he then moved to Utah. In 2004, Melvin was sentenced to 1 to 15 years in prison on charges of enticing a minor over the internet and attempted forcible sexual abuse. Now remember, when Lauren questioned Melvin about this, he said that he met a girl at a party, she lied about her age, he got in trouble. That is not at all what happened, surprise, surprise. Melvin had been chatting with someone who he thought was a 13-year-old girl in an online chat room. But instead, it was an undercover cop. Melvin made arrangements to meet up for quote-unquote wild sex with what he thought was a teenage girl. But instead of a teenage girl, he was met with handcuffs. 
Authorities learned shortly after arresting Melvin that two days before he was arrested for this internet crime, he actually raped a 17-year-old girl. And despite raping a young lady and trying to entice another, while these cases were proceeding, Melvin was released from jail with an ankle monitor where he continued to attend college classes at the University of Utah. He eventually dropped out of those classes when he accepted a plea deal and pled guilty to two felony charges. But come to find out there were other charges and things against Melvin that never led to anything. In March 2003, a woman filed a police report saying that he attempted to rape her, but she was able to fight him off. Then, in early 2004, while Melvin was out on bail, a woman filed a restraining order against him. Then, in July, he was sentenced to that 1 to 15 years in prison. Let me just pull this all together quickly so we're all following, we're all on the same page. He had an attempted rape that he never seemed to face charges for. He had his enticing a minor, the forcible rape of the 17-year-old, and a restraining order. Clearly, this man is a predator. He's clearly a problem and has no business being released from prison. Melvin's first three attempts at parole had been denied. But eight years into his sentence, he had yet another parole hearing. And this time, the board asked him about how many victims does he really have. And Melvin questions if the man asking this means women he dated or actual people he forcibly raped. Because he considers nearly every single woman he came in contact with a victim because he took advantage of all of them. Melvin says that every single woman he dated or interacted with, he used his charm and manipulation on them to get whatever he wanted. He used and abused women on all levels. This guy is a frickin' pig. The parole hearing officer asks Melvin flat out, how many women did you actually rape like the young lady he was in prison for? Melvin openly admits that there are two other victims out there that he raped and got away with it. But again, he restates that he sees the way he manipulates and uses women as a way that he victimizes women. He admits that he had manipulated at least 50 women to have sex with him. Despite Melvin Rowland flat out admitting there are two other victims out there that he forcibly raped, This was never investigated. Nobody tried to identify and get justice for these other women. Now, since all of this information has come out, the Board of Pardons and Paroles was questioned why this was never investigated. And they stated, quote, those testifying in hearings are placed under oath. There is not a Miranda warning, and these individuals retains their right against self-incrimination under the Fifth Amendment. The board is required to provide a fair and neutral decision-making process like judges in a court of law. The board's role is to ask questions and to respond to the information provided, but it cannot be a fair venue if we were also involved in investigatory and prosecutorial actions, end quote. And I hate to say, I see what they mean, but it doesn't make it any less infuriating. 
those victims he just willingly and nonchalantly admitted to raping deserved a voice. The parole hearing officer continues to tell Melvin that he hopes that when Melvin gets out, that he has learned from this experience, but only time will tell. Melvin replies that he knows that he has the capability of reoffending, but it's something that he will just have to prove to them that he won't do. In July 2012, a month after this parole hearing and a month after Melvin admitted to two other victims, he was released on parole. Three months later, he was back in prison after he failed to participate in mandatory sex offender therapies and for having links to pornography on his phone. In 2013, he was paroled again and remained out of prison for two and a half years. But surprise, surprise, he violated parole and was sent back to prison in February of 2016. After two years in prison, he had another parole board hearing in January 2018, and the board had to decide whether they were going to keep Melvin in prison for the remainder of his sentence, which was another 16 months, or they could release him and monitor him and allow him back into the community. In this hearing, he is very smooth talking, saying he understands that he hasn't been a model citizen. He's made mistakes that landed him back in prison twice, but he's ready to prove himself. Once more, he was paroled in April 2018. The following month, Melvin received his first warning from his new parole officer named Megan Thompson. She found that he had been using dating apps on his phone to connect with women, which was against the rules. Because it wasn't a huge violation, he only received a warning. In August, he tested positive for marijuana and again was given another verbal warning. A lot of people really scrutinize the parole officer for not slamming him for this drug use. However, she states that she handled it the way in which she was supposed to. And she pretty much states that she wouldn't have been able to send him back to prison just for marijuana use. He got popped for marijuana use on August 15th, and then he met Lauren on September 1st. On September 8th, 2018, Melvin's co-worker from the bar, Nathan Vogel, asked his friend Sarah Lady to help him purchase a Beretta 40 caliber handgun. According to Desert News, Nathan needed to purchase the gun for his employment, but he was unable to obtain the handgun that day because he had a waiting period due to his background in the military. So he asked Sarah to purchase the gun for him, and he provided her with money to do so. Obviously, this is illegal. It's called a straw purchase, and you can't do that. Nathan loaned this gun to Melvin when he took Lauren's shooting. Then, of course, we know that on October 2nd, Lauren's friends notified Diamond Jackson, the housing advisor for Lauren's dorms, about Lauren's relationship. According to Diamond, from that point until when Lauren was murdered, she continued to ask her supervisors what was being done to ensure Lauren's safety. And they all brushed it off, not giving it a whole lot of attention, stating that they are going to look into it. The director of conduct is going to look into it. Something was eventually going to be done for her. But as we know, nothing was done for her. 
When Officer Miguel Deras was interviewed for that ESPN documentary, he really didn't have answers as to why things were handled the way that they were. When asked what kind of threat did they think that Melvin was to Lauren, he stated that he wasn't even sure if the person who was harassing Lauren was Melvin at that time. He said that Lauren wasn't overly sure that it was Melvin. She thought it maybe it could have been him, but it could have been his friends. Officer Darez is asked why they didn't just go and interview Melvin. And again, he replies that they didn't because they weren't sure if he was involved. And the interviewer says, quote, why not ask him? And Officer Darez sat there with no answer for what felt like an eternity. It was the most awkward silence that I think I have ever seen in an interview. He literally did not have a reason why he or his fellow officers or the detective, for that matter, didn't go and ask Melvin Rowland if he was harassing Lauren. He eventually states that he wasn't trained to do that, and instead his job was to document and take notes and then pass the information along to his superior officers. Officer Darez was also asked what he saw when he looked up Melvin's parole status. His answer was that he wasn't trained to look that up. Officer Darez was asked again if there was ever any concern for Lauren's safety after he learned the charges Melvin had from 2004. He said, of course, there was concern because those charges in and of themselves are concerning. But because Lauren didn't know if it was Melvin harassing her, he wasn't concerned for her safety specifically. And if all of this doesn't make you mad, the way in which this was handled, get ready to be livid. While taking all of the information from Lauren over the span of several days, Officer Darez also requested that Lauren send him the nude images that she was being blackmailed over so that he could send those to Detective Dalif. He also allegedly showed the explicit photos to fellow officers as well. According to Desert News, not only did Miguel Darris show off Lauren's photos to other officers in the hallway at the station, he also showed them to people at the scene of her murder. An investigation was conducted and did not find that Officer Darris downloaded or forwarded those pictures to anyone, but that he had showed the images to at least three officers in the course of conducting his job. It was also reported that Officer Darez made unprofessional comments about the photos and stated that he could look at them whenever he wanted. Lauren trusted Miguel Darez when she sent those images to him for the investigation. She trusted him to give those to Detective Dalif and that that would be that. She trusted him and yet he betrayed that trust. Now, Officer Darius completely denies ever doing that. He said that there was no way he was bragging about having the photos or there's no way that he was showing them off. When all of this came to light, several officers lost their jobs and Miguel Darius, who was working at a different agency by this time, was also fired from his job. Investigators also learned that six days before Lauren's murder, Melvin went to his supervisor at the call center and told them that he was about to be in trouble. He told his supervisor that he had been extorting Lauren for money and he knew that he was going to get in trouble for it. He knew that Lauren had told authorities because he saw the emails and so he knew he was likely going back to jail. He told his supervisor that he didn't want to quit his job, but instead he wanted to take a leave of absence. This supervisor didn't 
contact anyone either. Usually most employers are aware if their employee is on parole. This supervisor could have called his parole officer and alerted her of what he said, but again, nothing was done. I do, however, want to give this supervisor the benefit of the doubt here and think that she likely thought it was about to be taken care of, seeing that Lauren had been in touch with police. Little did this supervisor know, the police weren't doing anything to help Lauren. There's just so many what-ifs in this case, and so many opportunities that people could have stepped up and intervened, yet they didn't. I do want to add that the two individuals, Nathan Vogel and Sarah Lady, who bought the firearm that was used in Lauren's murder, were charged with making false statements to obtain that weapon. Though it's not real justice for Lauren and those two had no idea that this would be the outcome of those actions, I am still happy that they were charged with something. On the two-year anniversary of Lauren's death, the University of Utah announced a $13.5 million settlement with the McCluskeys. At a press conference on the campus, University President Ruth Watkins made a statement that said, quote, The university acknowledges and deeply regrets that it did not handle Lauren's case as it should have, and that at the time its employees failed to fully understand and respond appropriately to Lauren's situation. As a result, we failed Lauren and her family, end quote. Jill McCluskey also made a statement saying that, All of the money from the settlement will go towards the Lauren McCluskey Foundation missions, which include campus safety, animal welfare, and amateur athletics. The Lauren McCluskey Foundation also created a campaign called Lauren's Promise, which is a promise to listen and believe you if you say someone is threatening you. The foundation works with more than 5,000 universities and colleges worldwide to help them bring awareness, funding, research, and resources to help change the way people respond to dating violence and stalking. Not only that, but they help to provide self-defense classes and hold annual races for campus safety to honor the legacy of Lauren McCluskey. Since the passing of Lauren, the University of Idaho, where Lauren spent so many hours practicing to become a better athlete, renamed the track after her, and they resurfaced it and added her name to it. There's also a Lauren McCluskey cat wing at the County Humane Society in Pullman, where Lauren used to volunteer her time. I know that the amount of support that the McCluskeys have received for their family and for the foundation has been incredibly moving for them. It's extremely inspiring to see them turn such a tragic situation into a beautiful movement to honor Lauren. Please check out the link in the description of this episode for the foundation. It's a beautifully crafted website with a lot of information and resources. When you click the tab for Lauren's Promise, you can also fill out a form to make Lauren's Promise and request more information about how you can improve campus safety at your schools. The website lists ways that you can get involved as well as events that they hold each year in honor of Lauren. There's also a place where you can donate as well as a shop to purchase some Lauren McCluskey Foundation gear. 
I encourage each and every one of you to take the time to check out the Lauren McCluskey Foundation website and to make Lauren's promise. If you're a college student or a campus employee, you can learn more about ways to get help for your college. Again, all of that information is directly on their website. What's really incredibly sad about all of this is that the University of Utah made promises of big changes after Lauren's death. But three years after she was murdered, another student at the University of Utah named Chiffon Dong was murdered on February 11th, 2022. Her murder took place less than a month after she notified school housing officials that her ex-boyfriend, who was also a fellow student, assaulted her. Five months after her death, the university acknowledged quote-unquote shortcomings in its response to Chiffon's case. At the same freaking university, you guys, you would think that three years after Lauren's death that they would have their crap together, that they would have gone through any and all scenarios, how to handle those scenarios, and properly train their staff. But another woman slept through the cracks. It's inexcusable. I also want to remind everyone about that beautiful documentary on Lauren done by ESPN Investigates. I will have the link in the description of this episode. I highly encourage you guys to check it out. Take the time to watch it. I think that you will feel even more connected to Lauren and her story after watching it. Lastly, I just want to thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. This is by far my longest podcast episode to date. However, it's extremely important to share Lauren's story and to continue to educate ourselves about intimate partner violence and stalking. If you are in need of some resources for yourself or someone you know, I will also have those included in the description of this episode. If you're not already a part of my private Facebook group, make sure you join it by searching Crime with Holly podcast discussion group. In there, I share all information and pictures pertaining to the cases that I cover. And I also encourage each and every one of you in the group to share all things true crime. You can also follow me over on Instagram at Crimeaholly. And if you'd like more true crime content, you can follow me on TikTok at crimewithholly.podcast. Until next time, you guys, be aware and take care. Bye-bye.